The cliche has always been that Africa is a potential that has lived below its expectation. It's a story told of how a continent abundantly flown with the proverbial milk and honey still wanders in hunger. Yet the African story is not all about gloom. Africa is also a story of brilliance, inspiration, global breakthroughs, innovation and invention, of living hallmarks of a story that is rarely told. A story of an Africa that is changing, an Africa that has changed. Hello, my name is Isaac Kodyo Abwa, entrepreneur, thinker and writer. And here on the Change Africa podcast, I bring these stories to life. You're going to have up-close and personal conversations with the change makers leading Africa's transformation. Viola is the CEO of Uvamba Technologies and truly one of the most innovative companies in the world according to Fast Company. Thank you very much, Viola, for coming to the podcast. So let's start from why you wanted to come back to Africa. You had lived your life entirely in the UK. You had built a successful career there. And when you had these conversations with people about why you wanted to come back home, they didn't really believe in the African potential. So I want to know what really pushed you to want to come back to the continent to build the business. Well, uh, I've, I've told this story so many times, but I love the way you asked the question. I had zero intention of having anything to do with Africa because my experience with it from teenage years and everything that I had encountered was very much reinforcing of either a stereotype or stuff I didn't like, but had no ability to change. And my understanding of Africa was from the standpoint of food I eat with family, hanging out with family, my mother's town in Cameroon, Kumba, and the childhood and the boarding school that I went to. Because I was born in London. I went to Cameroon when I was 12 and went back when I was 16. We were very formative, impactful years. But after leaving and going back to the UK, my career was escalating and I was doing very well. And like many of the diaspora, why on earth would you quote unquote go backwards when you're doing the thing that everybody back home reveres, respects, applauds. Oh, that my family member who's overseas, that one who's in white man country, that one who is sending us uh, remittances and gifts and money. So you're over here doing this thing literally behind a veil and everybody is just seeing pictures of you standing next to nice shiny objects. So when my business partner, Marvin Cole, who is not an African, he's Jamaican. So in a way, I, I guess most black people would consider themselves African in some way, shape or form. He was the one who said, oh, wow, I'm trying to build an investment platform for Africa because it's going to be big. And I remember laughing at him and saying, you complete idiot. There's no way Africa can be big. It's dysfunctional. It's dusty. It's a mess. It's got bad leadership. And um, the only thing I know about Africans are the friends and family I know. I didn't have a point of, ta- of tangible reference to others other than those in politics. So he said, but the problems Africa has, if anybody can find a way to resolve some of them, they will build world-changing legacy. Don't you want to be a part of that? And it struck me that many of us in the diaspora are very comfortable and have zero interest in supporting a positive narrative about Africa. Because in a twisted way, the more it stays a little bit wrecked, the shinier we look 
And we can easily say things like, oh, we're not like that, or I've abandoned that, I've embraced Westernism because that's what's championed, that's what's celebrated. So when I went back to Cameroon, I hadn't been back there in nearly 25 years. And I was shocked and appalled at the visual impact it had on me and at the scale of opportunity, which I was now looking at these problems as opportunity and not as a negative um, critique for the entire continent. I came back and I said to Marvin Cole, I saw what you mean. I'm getting down to business with you. So I sold my house. I sold everything I had. I told my husband, there will be no money for a long time. I'm about to do something that I have never seen done before. And I don't know if it will work, but I must try this. I have a funny feeling that now's the time. And I've never looked back. So that's how I ended up doing what I do, uh, being a huge fan and a champion for Africa's narrative. And I have a way more balanced perspective on the the side of me that's Western and the side of me that is very African. That's a very inspiring story. Um, I want to know, where did you start your journey from? And what did you do initially before you came to Africa? And did you um, go back to Cameroon to just build a business from scratch? I want to go into detail on how that process um, started. Yeah, I went to Cameroon when I was 12, as I mentioned, and I went to school. Then when I went back as an adult, I when I was 21, I came to answer questions about my conduct, which involved a, a bunch of nefarious choices with good-looking Caribbean men who, to my mom, this is an appalling choice, much better if you date Nigerians at this point which is every female parent every mother's fear back then was oh no a Nigerian how absolutely scary but when I went back as a grown adult I had I was in um, communications I had sold technology successfully when most black black women didn't I worked for IBM I had been working for KPMG Consulting Unisys Corporation, and now I was building out a business development business, advising on what areas of revenue generation would be good for companies that are looking to react and turn themselves around from whatever line of business. So that's what I was doing when I met Marvin Cole, who said, let's build an investment platform for the continent. So I want to find out what some of the challenges you faced when you came back to build Uvamba. Because you have this sort of changing perspective about what Africa has and what Africa could be. But then what was the juxtaposition between that newfound enthusiasm and the reality that you came to meet here in Africa? And how did that become, how did that make your journey difficult, you know? My first reality started with self. I had to have a very serious internal dialogue about the amount of damage that I personally had done and contributed to the um, poor progress that was perceived by Africa because I had enjoyed, unfortunately, numerous conversations with people whereby it's almost a sport of how cleverly can you articulate and denigrate Africa for its lack of governance and its unfortunate, poor cultural movements and all the rest of these things. And it's the, a culture of complaint that, especially in Francophone Africa, is very prevalent and people do it over beer, they do it over wine, and they enjoy having these conversations 
where they bond together like lost children in an attic about just how crap our continent is. I no longer do that. And just like Elizabeth, if I catch it in my, in my line of sight within my hearing, I go on the attack. Because after all, you never hear Italians say, don't come to our country because we've got the mafia. They'll tell you, come on over and drink our cappuccino and eat our pasta and look at our wonderful, hot-looking men and women. But Africans who are literally first citizens of this planet, we don't do that. So that much has changed. The other thing that has changed is um, explaining to individuals that the meaning of wealth has a cultural implication that most people ignore when it comes to Africa. The truth of the matter is majority of the Western world has been very comfortable with the idea of helping poor Africans because it makes you feel good about yourself. They'll go on these tours, selling Tom's slippers and doing a whole bunch of things that really don't help us. And we really shouldn't be getting help. We should be helping ourselves. We should be engaging with people on a, um, an equal footing as collaborators. And we should be telling people we've got something to teach you versus come and help us with capacity building. And these are terminologies that really rub me the wrong way and cheese me off no, no end because there are pockets of brilliant excellence and original thinking that the world should be listening to. And it is the job of those of us who are older to open the door for that narrative and to allow our young people to come forward. So I've changed very much in that respect about how I feel about the place that birthed the people I came from. In your perspective, is there a way that we can rethink these fundamentally wrong narratives about Africa? Yes. And here's the conclusions that I have come to as a businesswoman, a techpreneur, and that is... We need to learn the difference between what is political and what is civil. We tend to blend our narrative understanding of problems as government problems, forgetting that we have a lot of power as humans, as individuals. And one of the things I've always said, especially since building Ovamba and coming in across the almost insurmountable hurdles, and one of those is the fact that the government's in any country, regardless of where you are, has very little ability to uh, influence how we choose to treat each other in business and in personal engagement. Yet we have a tendency to want to run to the government for solutions for jobs as an excuse. There is no force on this earth that can prevent you from honoring a contract or a partnership agreement. You can do these things. We can have satellites and nodes of excellence and good outcomes amongst each other in business or in innovation and engagement. Now, the larger construct of policy, regulation and engagement, that's a different matter. We have power amongst ourselves as human beings to have an effect or choose how things affect us and how we choose to react. So those are, that's the first thing that I could say, yes, Here's where change can be made literally within the hour. How we treat each other in business. How we raise our children. How we elevate the role of women in our societies. How we choose to say no to things. There's lots that we can do. Lots. So reading about Uvamba, I found out that you are engaged in this innovative way of financing in the Islamic community. And I don't know so much about Islamic finance, but I know it has some different ideas from what we know from mainstream finance. So my question to you is, 
how have you been able to adapt and merge these very interesting ideas of Islamic finance to the way people assess capital in these places where we know for a fact that capital is very difficult to get? I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, it most certainly is. And um, the secondary layer of the question that you asked me and the secondary answer to earlier was, our original idea was to take the very ancient African activity of congregating social groups of individuals to raise capital and share risk is what Ovamba wanted to do. I don't know any part of our cultural groupings and where people don't do partner money, susu, uh, tontine, jangi, box, meetings. This idea that people will put money together to invest in those things that have a shared risk or shared intent or common goals or are interoperable with each other. We've been doing that since the dawn of time. So when it comes to banking and finance, Africans have had their way of doing it. And now you get this post-colonial thing called banks, which are necessary, important, plays to safely stash your cash, your money, or have deposits of note, or have something that will say that the um, the credit worthiness of this individual is banked and retained by X amount of gold, whatever you want to name it. So when we started that, we thought that was the way to go ahead. Discovering that we can go much further, it's so very, very different. It lent itself to Islamic finance because the journey of failure that we went through as we tested one idea of another reminded us that we have to learn how we ask questions. And the question for Obama that brought us to Islamic finance, based on what I just told you about um, group finance, was which groups of individuals do the best with money and how can we find a way to put capital into the system without risking poverty and by ensuring that there is real growth and not just capital spent with no accounting and no data attached to it. What We asked the question, what are people really doing with money when they apply for loans? And the answer was, they're buying and selling things. Of course, if they're buying and selling things, how can we find the right points of disruption? And the key area of disruption is the customer themselves who think that money only comes from banks. And then the next thing is disrupting fraud and corruption. How do we do that? Ah, We do that by finding those that are making the most contribution to GDP. And Elizabeth said the most boosting salaries because that's what you eat for dinner every night. Find those individuals and help their businesses grow. Find those individuals and give them tools that will allow them to expand their ambition and be cross-cultural. Well, that means we have to buy the goods that they need and have them buy it back because we can't risk lending. We're not a bank. We're not certified. We don't have a banking license. We don't want to do banking. And we don't want to have to go through a court to exact a lien on individuals whose mentality says they'd much rather pay a police officer to disrupt your life than pay the money that is owed, because that's what's happened to our culture, to be honest. So in resolving all of those issues, buying goods for customers and allowing them to buy it back from you until they have full ownership, which is a murabaha, is Islamic. We didn't know that word, and we did not know there was a, a word to describe what we were trying to do. So this was by mistake because of what we'd gone through. So we studied, 
got certified. And since then, we've become the big, one of the biggest funders of alternative finance for trade. Customers need inventory. All right, we'll get you what you need. In fact, we'll get more of it than you ever had. And then we're going to give you digital tools to manage the process of selling to wholesalers and retailers. And then before you run out of goods, we're going to do it all again. But we're going to do it automated. It's all technology driven. And you can manage it on your cell phone. And you don't have to go into a bank. And you don't have to wait for two weeks for them to answer you. And you don't have to wait for your Chinese supplier to charge you top dollar to send you goods in 90 days while you're still trying to pay that money back. So we're affecting cash flow, making it smoother. We're affecting inventory, putting more of it in the market. And we're affecting the tracking of capital. Who's buying what from who and how much did they pay and how much of the economy is affected by this velocity of capital and what does it do to employment? That's what Obama has built, all because we accidentally became uh, Sharia compliant and use Islamic finance with some very old principles of African uh, finance. You know, that's really great. And this is a prototypical example of African solutions for African problems. Because what we find is that in the status quo, we tend to copycat Western ideas and Western ways of innovations and we bring them to our African context and they don't quite fit. Um, but you see that what we what we term as the gig economy or shared systems are things that really have existed in past ways of living, really in past evolutions of the African economy, um, our ways of life, how we share money, how we share our houses, how we share our food. These are things that have existed centuries ago. And when the West tend to create innovations around these things in Uber, in Airbnb, we tend to praise them for it. But these are things that have originally existed here. So I guess the onus is on us to find ways of digitizing these innovative systems to provide more access and opportunities for even more people, right? And that is why I think that Uvamba is a very special company at that, leading the way in how we we we, we find the innovations that are embedded in our culture and our systems and digitize them to provide more opportunities for more people. That is why Uvamba is a, is a very special company and a fast company, innovative um, company at that. I think I think that's very special, and congratulations for Uvamba at that. Thank you, and I love how you articulate that because it's very true. Um, it's a case of perception. What is it that we class as, yay, this is groovy, this is not so groovy? So there is um, a great, uh, there seems to be a great advantage when a Westerner takes an idea and builds something and the society around them and the business ecosystem around them adjusts itself to, to highlight and showcase what this has done because of the respect for innovation and the healthy division between the private sector and the public sector. And this goes back to what I said before, disrupting the African idea that the government is a solution to all of your problems. Even in Cameroon at one point, I remember every time my parents, who were one of the first to own a house in 1970 in the UK, many Cameroonians and even Nigerians, Africans came to through our home so often because they assumed that my parents had done very well and had succeeded, which they had. It was unusual. It was a bit of an anomaly. But the conversation always comes up with when you finish your studies and you go home, you'll go to the government and they will give you a job. And the society has reached a point where 
going to get a very good government job seems to be a check mark for success. Having a job that is based on your degrees in maths, chemistry, physics, and all of those colonial study subjects and curriculum is another check mark to great success. But the young Cameroonian, Nigerian, Kenyan, or whatever, who comes to their parents and says, I want to be a poet, a tap dancer, and a rap star, and I want to make movies, and I'm really interested in makeup and hair, it's going to get slapped across the head because we still haven't detached ourselves from the idea that there's only one form of success. And that needs to change. Otherwise, all these digital innovations that we're doing will fail in their intended goal to open up the democracy of opportunity so that the best of your talents as a human being can be showcased to give you a life that is fulfilling and you are now a positive contributor to the society at large. So we need to address that. And for me, Ovamba and the technology and the intended result of generational wealth is directly related to that, directly. So I didn't start off this podcast wanting to do conversations around a particular team, right? Um, but what I find out is that these conversations that we've had in the past, they've been very prevalent around certain teams, especially the informal economy, shared economy systems, these teams around non-consumption and how we should try and find a way to bring it part, um, to bring them as part of the so-called formal economy. And I just wanted to pick up your thoughts on how we should validate or restructure our education to validate the skills of the people in the so-called informal economy because I was having a conversation with one of our previous guests, Carl Malan, who talked about how when we don't respect the skills of these people who are on the street selling ice water, selling chips and all of that, and we think that they are uneducated, but then they're able to do negotiating, they're able to do accounting, they're able to do sales, they're able to do marketing of their products. And these are all the skills that we actually need to build our economies up. And these are the things that we teach people in school. But because we think they are... F- they are informal, we tend to undermine the skills that we have. How do we try and bring them part of the so-called formal economy and just validate their skill set? I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yes, the informal economy isn't what people think. There are, And if we were to do a study to see how they derive their learning and use it and transfer that knowledge and manage all of this stuff in their head, you'll find that they're as smart as any global CEO in their own right. And I don't even want to disrespect their efforts by saying if we could only know. They have a lot to teach us. In fact, Ovamba's technology and approach to innovation is very much based upon the realities of these types of traders in the marketplace their strengths, their weaknesses, what they need. Um, What they inform us are their ideas of uh, what would make their businesses better. And I personally have come to the conclusion that the goal is not to migrate all of them to the formal economy because some of them don't want to be there. And even those that do, quote unquote, become part of the formal economy, I would never recommend that they abandon the power of the informal ways in which they do business, because that's what the reality of the ecosystem. We always talk about the fact that Ovamba's technology is built for frontier markets and has been battle hardened by how it has 
its innovative roots in culture and how our approach to digital transformation is about the impact on human life and taking a cue from human requirements to simple things like growth, wealth, peace of mind, poverty eradication. And poverty eradication is poverty of the mindset, not just I have bad clothes and no food to eat and I don't know where I'm going to pay my bills. It's many different things. We, we take a holistic approach to all of that. The informal economy is grossly undercounted and has a lot to do with the success of the economies that we come in and out of. And I'm constantly looking at what it is that they do. The sharing economy, the gig economy, our culture is not one of people trying to stand out as individuals and put themselves as I'm the winner and I'm the only winner and nobody else can win like me. In fact, when we see that in African societies, it tends to be problematic. And it is usually the start of egomania that is not good for society. When we look at what we're doing and people like Elizabeth and yourself and all of these groups that create places and spaces for people to collaborate and work together, it's because we know as Africans that if you want to go far, you, do go, you don't go alone. It's part of who we are. We shouldn't have to abandon it because we've mistakenly assumed that only the Western benchmarks of success are the ones that we should adopt in order to become globally relevant. We need to change the tide on that. And if anything, I would say that the rest of the world is taking cues from us as Africans with our approach to shared fates, shared economies, shared collaborations, and the way in which we do things. And it's called cultural appropriation. And we see it in every nook and cranny. So I will come back to trade tech, which is something they're also doing. But I would like us to segue the conversation to something more personal. Um, in one online oh, interview that you had, you yes, talk about one of the best decisions of her had was taking the step to marry your husband, Vincent. Can you tell us about Vincent? There isn't a corner of the world right now that isn't talking about um, diversification and inclusion and the role of women in business and society. And one of the things as a feminist that is very clear to me is that the fate of men is tied to women and vice versa. If you're a woman fortunate enough to marry a man who believes that you can save him by working together economically and financially, you now have the most powerful platform. And I wouldn't call it permission, but you now have an opportunity to flex your wings in ways that you might not necessarily be able to do with a spouse whose ego is a bit more fragile. I am fortunate enough to be married to a man who completely champions what I'm doing, loves me, loves my family, loves my friends, um, is very quick to say, I've no idea what you're talking about, please explain, and who has adjusted his life and his finances around my success because of what it does for us as a family. And I mean an extended family. When I said to um, Vincent, I've just met this guy called Marvin Cole, who I think will change the world. And I want to throw in with him perfectly. We're going to have to sell the house. It took about a 10 minute conversation for Vincent to say, I'm convinced I'll help you pack up our stuff. 
when I, um, yeah, when I said to Vincent, all that money you gave me for your pension, I have completely lost it. I'm really sorry. Can you help me get some more? He did. When I'm gone for two or three months and I come home and the home front is safe, ticking over, our daughters are great, grandchildren are great. I have peace of mind to operate in the world as a world leader. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen when I come home. That to me is what any woman would want at any level from a spouse. What they want from a man is the same level of consistent support that women give to men unconditionally year in, year out, century after century, men go out, they work, they're champions of industry, they go out, they conquer, they bring back the bacon and there's somebody with a, a home that is a great sanctuary to return to so you can go back out and do it all again the next day. Well, I have that and that, that makes me very grateful, very, very grateful for Vincent. You know, as men, I don't think we listen enough to women. And so I want to ask you this question. If you imagined that you are an older, accomplished woman. You were in a room full of young men, even older men. And you were supposed to tell them something that they didn't understand about women and they needed to know fundamentally. What would that be? Wow. My goodness me, Isaac. That question is a podcast in itself. Let me see if I can be as possible I'll answer the question by sharing something about myself. When I met Vincent, I was a very um, emotionally broken person who was healing. My first marriage had ended horrifically. I had not behaved well in it, neither had he. I was young and um, inexperienced and did not understand just what a bad situation I was in. So the first thing I learned from that was... If I had to do it all again, I would ensure that values were aligned with the person I was marrying. And I would ask very different questions of the man I was dating, especially if I was thinking about it with permanence. The next thing as advice to young people is the conversation should be around what problems do you want to solve in the world and how can our union and marriage enhance your ability to fix that? And what if we're looking at the same things together? Well, that's a brilliant way to stay bonded long after romance has disappeared or during those days when you can't stand your spouse anymore. After all, we are human. Remembering the greatness of who they were when you first met them and knowing that that person is still the same underneath, but there is an expectation that they will grow and it's a privilege to grow alongside of them and adjusting to fit them and making room for them. If both people are doing that by constantly examining the relationship and not just how you feel, then you're really in for a great future. Now, Vincent, when we got married, our honeymoon felt like a board meeting. And he said, we need a theme, a, a motto for who we are and why we're together. Because he made it very clear, Viola, I don't need you. And I know you don't need me. We're choosing to be together because we want to be. But what is that overriding reason? And he said, it's when one plus one equals three. This relationship, this marriage has to be more than the sum of our parts. And this is very analytical. So it forces me to constantly think in a, a hyper mode of bigger, better, stronger, more. I cannot show up day in, day out in our marriage just as an average housewife. 
I cannot show up in our marriage just as an average techpreneur. I have to be more than that. I have to be able to bravely plumb the depths of my personality talent and find out just what a badass can I be today? Because I know my husband thinks I'm the best. I want him to feel that way all the time. So therefore I'm driven. And and the, the reverse is true. When I met Vincent, he was a doorman at the Marriott Hotel. And by the 18th month of our marriage, he was the director of um, IT services at his hotel. And he's since gone on to have 20 something hotels under his belt. How did this happen? Because on our honeymoon during that board meeting, he asked, I asked him, what is it that you want to be? Where is the highest point of your ambition and achievement? And what role would you like me to play when that happens? And he said, I'm not quite sure what it will take for me to be where I want to go, but I have a funny feeling that because you're a woman, you see the world differently. So I am willing to jump when you tell me to, because I have a funny feeling that based on your career, you know things I don't. And one day out of the blue, I just told him, stop going to work, stay home. I'll cover everything. You need to think about what your next move is, but you can't do that with the context of the noise of your job. So chill. And he did. And that's when he became um, an IT director. From one morning, he was the doorman. In the afternoon, he had been promoted in a way that is incredibly rare. And in the last 20 years, he has done nothing but go from strength to strength to strength. So helping and pushing each other to be the very best. And that's exactly what I'm talking about as Africans with each other. When you encounter another African who just needs an opportunity, like some of the people at Ovamba who started out as drivers or in very, very humble roles and have moved into middle management, everybody needs an opportunity. And those that jump when they get the opportunity are the ones you need to back. And I feel so strongly about that because I've had somebody back me in my marriage, in my life, in my career, and I want to do the same for them. And that's why Vincent's the best. I think that what I've learned from all that you said is that most men, if they listen enough to women's perspective, it will do a lot of good to them and the world, um, in the greater world, right, in general. What, what do you think about that? Yes, and women should also listen to, we should listen to each other. Listening is the beginning of great communication. Listening and asking the right questions. For example, um, I, I, it would be great to see more men, African men ask the question, am I still a good husband to you? Because women change in ways that men miss so much. They just don't see it, even though it's underneath their noses. Um, there are too many examples of this that I can give. But the woman you are on the day you meet this guy that you're dating is not the same woman you are the day you give birth to his child. And it's not the same woman you become, as in my case, when you become stepmother to their children. And it's not the same woman you become, that you are when you are taking care of those who are sick and infirm. And it's certainly not the same woman when you suddenly realize that you're on a world stage and you are making huge changes in, in whole economies. And women have to grow into these roles and engage different parts of our growth muscle. And for a man to have the privilege to watch that journey of this human being is something they need to pay great attention to because these same men 
are the fathers of daughters who are also going to have to go through this journey. And this is also the other side of the coin when I tell women, be careful where you breed. Don't have children with really bad or stupid men because you'll just put more stupid men and stupid human beings onto the planet. We have a lot of power as the bouncers of the planet when we give birth to other human beings. So being very considerate and very comfortable with the power you will. I heard Elizabeth saying this. We, she and I say similar things under very different contexts. You have the power to decide which humans come to the planet. That is the ultimate. The ultimate. So um, the minute we start to take real stock of that, your mind shifts in different ways because the humans you're raising, you can decide. What am I going to give you to help enhance your skills as a fully realized human being? And when you're raising sons, there are some elements. When you're raising daughters, there are others. And when men and women marry, whatever the case may be, helping each other to be a fully realized human being is just the beginning of a very beautiful journey. And everybody should have that. It starts with listening. I think that is very profound, Viola, um, about the point that you made about the power is in women to bring people into the world and that by choosing the right man, they are actually contributing to the who the person becomes because who the person would become, the child would become, is really proportional to the kind of person that they give the opportunity to collaborate in bringing the, the child to the world. That is the, the man that they choose to have intercourse with to bring the child to the world. So I think that is very profound. And if women understood that they had that kind of power, I mean, innately would help them make a lot of right decisions about childbirth in general. Um, I want us to talk about your father. And I've read about how impactful he was on you in becoming a strong world woman and a feminist. And I want to know how he has really shaped you into becoming the woman that you are today and all that you've achieved? Thomas Jingwa um, was a very fascinating human being who was one of, what, 60-something kids. His mother was the daughter of the paramount chief of Bangwa, different tribe from Bafour. And his father was also a lower chief. And my dad was one of those super royal type young men. But he was also a descendant of Asanganyi, who was the, the, the chief who the British imprisoned for killing slave traders. And for the longest time in their family, the idea of going to school was frowned upon because there had been one of the chief's children who had been slapped by a missionary teacher who died as a young child. We now realize that was sickle cell. But the idea that school is bad for you became really part of my dad's narrative. But when he was young, he was given away because there were concerns that his mother, who had given birth six times and lost four children, they thought there was something going on there. My dad was very much favored by his father. So they gave him away to a good friend, literally in safety. One of those strange things that Africans do, oh, I love your child. That child is fine. Okay, take it. I've got a few more in the back so off dad went but my dad was genius level brilliant and he actually taught himself to read and write even though it had been made very clear do not let this child go to school but he did and they put him in secondary school where he excelled 
when my dad went into the medical profession, met my mom and the both of them decided to go to the UK because nobody really wanted them to be together. I was born and my dad's instruction to me based on that quiet sense of rebellion and the fact that my dad liked things that were not typical for Africans, classical music, ballet, art, uh, singing along to his records, reading the newspaper all day and not lifting a bloody finger in any form of uh, manual labor. <laughs> that was my dad. But he used to tell me, it's all right for you to think you're better than other people if you can prove it. And the likelihood is you are better than people because you're black and you're female. And when you grow up, you're going to find the world does not want you to do well and will want to take things from you and will prevent you from having opportunities. So therefore, you're always going to have to work three times as hard as other people. That means that even on your worst day, you're probably a whole lot better than other people on their best day because you're calibrated at a higher level for achievement and your expectations are always going to be way higher than other people. So basically, Viola, I've given you a formula whereby you can never be a failure because it's just not possible. And anybody who doesn't like you is confused. And I grew up thinking this is all true. Actually, I still think it's all true. And so I always had a reckless sense of enthusiasm and no sense of limitations for what I could do. I was precocious. I, I knew things that most kids my age didn't know. It did not help that my teachers also felt the same way about, about me as my dad. And so I grew up with this enhanced sense of fabulousness as a kid. That came to a crashing halt when I got to Cameroon and boarding school and people said, you ain't nothing. You are one of everybody. And I thought, but no, daddy said I'm better. I'm terribly intelligent and I'm going to do things my way and you're all going to like it. So when I was failing every subject, because I couldn't just regurgitate information verbatim, I needed an explanation, which is how I'm wired. I was completely shocked. And that was one of the reasons why my parents sent us back to the UK, because my dad said, they're going to miss potential because this is not the right learning environment for our kids. And that's what my dad did for me. So why is this important? I got pregnant when I was 19. My son was already dead by the time I was 20. I did not get to go to university because of the situation I was in. I've never been to college, but it never stopped me using the way my mind is wired because of my dad to be able to think, learn, and just literally push my way to wherever the heck I want to get. There's no such thing as, oh, I can't do it because. No, I, I'm going to get what I want because dad says I can. And when you give children that kind of a powerful message when they're little, it's permanent. It can do amazing things. So uh, it's never been an issue to sit down and say, yeah, of course I can run a multi-billion dollar company that is going to be to change the world. Because um, I, I expect that. That's That's what I want to do. And if somebody gets in my way, I will remove them. And if they get in the way of the people I love and want to help, I will do something about that as well. And actually, I'm not unique. A lot of people think that. They just haven't been given enough examples to prove that they can or a chance to try it. So that's what my dad did for me. And my mom was a perfect counterbalance in that respect. This part about you not going to college is something that I have not encountered in all my readings about you so i find it very fascinating it's perhaps you didn't talk about it so much oh i have 
mentioned it, but I think it's the least important and the, and the most boring thing about me. I believe I have five O levels and one A level somewhere in human biology. I wanted to be a genetic engineer when I was nine. I did not do that directly, but the same way in which I framed the world is how I understand what I do. And it's important for me to say this out loud because Africa is reaching a, a point of inflection where we will begin to understand that a traditional academic curriculum is not the only way to succeed. Going back to the informal sector, people who have native intelligence for their environment and talent are very powerful and that needs to be nurtured in whatever way is normal for them. I was lucky I had that. I repeat to anybody listening, I will never ever run around pretending to be something that I'm not. Neither, neither should anybody else be forced to do that. Nobody should feel demeaned because they haven't hit the benchmarks that other people set as expectations. It is true. I have never been to university. I have maybe one A-level, but I have been fortunate enough to have been mentored by really great people or I've stolen the mentorship, siphoned it off when they were not looking. And I never looked at things from the standpoint of what could go wrong. I've only thought, oh, wow, look how fantastic this is going to be. And then when I fall fantastically on my butt and fail, um, I've learned how to pivot and stand up and keep going and not be embarrassed about my failures. Everything I've failed at is way more important to any young woman wanting to succeed than me sharing success stories. And that's a fact. You know, I share some of these fundamental ideologies about failure, as you have described in your narrative. You know, African culture really unfortunately demonizes failure. But I feel like we should totally embrace failure. And I've shared a lot about how young people especially should be asked to do the hardest things possible. Just zoom into the space of uncertainty and do things that they are probably going to fail at. Because it is through that introspective and retrospective reasoning and looking back at the past of what things you have failed at, that you actually glean the insights that will help you become a better person and thinker and help you take the right steps that is going to help you grow. You know, But more often than not, we just want to do the things that would easily um, succeed. But when we succeed, our first thoughts and impressions are to just go out and jubilate and chill, right? We don't really take the steps to analyze and, you know, come up with reasons for the success. We just want to just, you know, cheer up and enjoy the success. But when we fail, that is where we take a step back and we say, why did we fail? What went wrong? And that is something we need more. And that is something that, you know, that kind of process-based thinking and why we feel should be the focus. We should really encourage and embrace that. And before we can do that, we have to feel and we have to launch into the uncertainties of life. Yeah, I completely agree. And here's the reason why. Um, the act of failure is very personal and it's very intimate and it can do all kinds of things to you and the people watching. Um, when you fail and then analyze, you get an opportunity to to really dig deep into, is it you? Is it situation? What can you do better? Those flash bulbs of insight and brilliance when you go, oh, that's why that didn't work. Because later on, and let's take a Vamba, for example. And this is why um, 
the fear we have in our African context that somebody is going to steal my idea is ridiculous and pathetic. People will always steal your ideas. The challenge is how do they thread their way to executing it the way you are going to, because they don't have the roadmap of where the landmines are. Now that I have failed spectacularly through whatever it is I'm doing, or Marvin and I and Prashant have had to restart the business or make changes, we know what to avoid going forward. And therefore, our success is directly proportionate to the amount of failure we survive and pivot from. It's actually obliquely related to why um, if you give poor people lots of money, they just get poorer. That is because everybody is calibrated in such a way that you can only succeed as much as you are willing to absorb failure. You can only win as much as you are willing to lose. If your capacity to lose is very, very small, then your appetite for risk is just as small. If your risk appetite is small, your successes will be minimal. Let's take a look at our dear fellow Africans again in investment. When they come to you and they say, I'm in business, I want to invest. And you ask, well, what have you invested in in the past? Oh, I've I've built houses and hotels. That is not investment. That is construction. And when you say, of course, I can invest 250,000 into Obama for you and help you with uh, with a return on transaction. Well, I, I, I need guarantees. No, investments do not always come with guarantees. If you're to invest, you must be willing to deal with the idea that you might lose. Now, if you ask the question, what risk mitigation is in place? Now you have a tableau of range where you can say, well, I can only tolerate this much, but I'm willing to give it a go. And the more we educate our African brothers and sisters on this idea of how to measure, understand risk, the wealthier they're going to become when they have the courage to make investments. So I'll thread this back to what we were originally saying. You, we have to be able to take failure and realize it's a necessary part of the rewards of success. And if we teach our children early to not feel bad about it, and if we teach our children that I will be here when you need me, you must never be afraid of coming to me with a poor score in a test, because all I'm going to say as your parent is, how can I help you to feel better and make this better next time. It's important for us as African parents to allow our children to feel bad and to recognize what is making them feel bad and how to fix that so that they can be much stronger next time. But I know so many that say, I'm dead. I cannot go home. I failed at something because the people who are supposed to love you the most are now going to kill you. That's how our societies start out going wrong. Right there. This is not what we should be doing to young children. That means teachers who teach kids, you should be teaching the class with the idea, I want all of you kids to have this knowledge so that you can use it in your particular way. When I went to school in Cameroon, the idea for teachers was, you're a good teacher if everybody fails because it means that you're teaching a very difficult subject and you're just too good and they're not good enough. This is a very twisted, broken way of raising humans but it is prevalent. And you just said yourself, Isaac, that you've seen and understood what that's like. 
but everywhere we look around us, we are stimulated by what failure can do versus what success can do for us. I know I've been waffling along, but this is a topic I feel really, 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 really strongly about. That is so well profoundly said, you know. Um, I was having this conversation with my mom just recently, and we were talking about how children really are searching for love in this world. They are young, they are so naive, and all they want is for people to show and love them and give them the kind of care that is going to build in them faith and confidence. And more often than not, when parents do not give it to them, and parents do actually owe it entirely to love their children unconditionally, and when they do not give it to them, they tend to find it in different spaces, in friends, and usually, and unfortunately too, in toxic places and it's through this like toxic love that we find these problems emerging and 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 it's quite unfortunate it's like parents so much focus on their work focus on their ambitions focus on the poverty that's around them that they're not able to give enough time to their children but we need to give children that kind of love because that's what they need and when they don't get it and unfortunately find out in these find the love in these toxic places it can really hurt who they become it can really take away their confidence and really shape them in bad ways and and that is not something that we want for the future of africa beautifully said you are so right you've observed and you've seen this and it happens all over the place but that um expression translates and gets transferred with every dynamic all the way through to the workplace. When people talk about skills gap in Africa, they're sometimes narrowly defining it as people who don't have the right educational background and business or office experience by which they can become um, a well-used part of the enterprise machinery that is trying to develop, deliver revenue and profits. And I see skills gap as not just that, but also the native personality type that is bereft of caring to the point that when they get into the workplace, they don't do the job from the point of personal satisfaction, but really just do the job to the point of minimal compliance in order to not lose their job. So therefore, they're not interested in doing customer service. They're not interested in saying, I don't understand. They're not interested in helping their coworkers. They're very happy if the phrase, oh, um, the, the boss is not on seat, so therefore we cannot do anything. And they don't have the courage to take initiative to say, I know it's not my job, but I'm going to step in and help out because I care what happens to everything around me. I'm a meaningful part of the system. Skills a lack of skills means that you're not going to view the world that way. You're not going to think about the power you wield to make change. You'll wait for permission so that you're not responsible for outcomes. And leadership requires that you are invested in outcomes and you're willing to make a mistake and you're not going to ask permission before you do what is right. And for women especially, we're sometimes told too many times that we have to wait for permission to do anything or to do what's right. You're asked to, to watch your place, you're judged, or whatever the case may be. We need to raise human beings that want to jump into the gap and use their initiative, whether they've been asked to or not. This is just a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. You know, you just said something about how you basically steal mentorship. You know, you force mentorship out of people. And... 
I want to ask you, how important is mentorship, especially in the lives of young women? Especially my version, which I said, you know, I steal and siphon mentorship. That's because psychologically, if you go up to somebody you barely know, or even somebody you do know very well and say, hey, I want you to be my mentor. When somebody does that to me, my brain shuts down and says, I don't want to do another thing. But if you are around me and I find that there is commonality, there's respect, you like my opinion, I like what you're trying to do, we're talking, I share what I know, and you watch me at work and you emulate and you figure to yourself, here are the benchmarks and standards of excellence that I'm going to now emulate. That gives you a really good foundation for building whatever it is that you're doing. And in my case, having um, just a pretty good mind and a, a slightly better ability than most people to see patterns, which is what my dad taught me. His parting gift for me in this world was his way of teaching me to connect um, events and theories that are wrapped in the fact that I have a really good memory for seeing patterns so that if something else comes along, I can say, oh, it is uh, systematically like X, Y, and Z. These are the variants, so therefore the outcome is going to be blah, blah, blah. I can, I can project and figure out what's likely to happen. Everybody can do that, but they don't realize that they can because nobody's taught them to use that way of thinking in the absence of um, a traditional education. And traditional education is really just that. It teaches you basic premise by which to extrapolate an outcome or a reason and compare it to what's been proven before. It's a scientific method. All little children are scientists. You have to keep that alive. So by having that and then watching people and siphoning mentorship, you can literally fake it till you make it. And it's a very powerful thing to do, but it's frowned upon by traditional people, especially within the African context, because they'll say there isn't an exam for that. So you can't present it as a certificate and say that you're accomplished. They want something that's tangible. I don't have any of that. I'm not looking for it either. And that's just the way my life went. But I usually recognize it in other people and I'll try to nurture it and say, here's how you get to be better at whatever it is that you want to do. Learn these basic skills. Read, learn, find patterns. <laughs> it's almost like you were listening in on the conversation with Elizabeth, but at a point in time you weren't, you know, you actually weren't. But it's very interesting that we are keeping coming back to these things that we're talking about because we went cycling around and this is not something that actually came on her um podcast episode with just this conversation that we were having ourselves about intuition and cycling around and how it's so powerful and how we both share the theme for it so i think it's very interesting that we're also having this conversation right now very powerful it's got different definitions there are um i remember my husband dear vincent one point said to me Prove to me that your intuition is right because you keep on making abstract comments that are correct. And I said, I, the thing about intuition is you can't, it, it's not proven to be correct until after the fact, unless you trust that person's track record. But it's really very simple. It's a case of an individual who can very rapidly put all the pieces together and come up with, here are the outcomes for this. It's a mental process where 
your heart and your gut is the final icing on the cake that gives you the the confidence to say i cannot prove it but this is correct and then people know from your track record this person usually gets this correct there is no logical ability to until afterwards to say here's the reason why this is correct because it happens in such a flash and it's um an important x factor to all kinds of great leaders whether it's steve jobs or whoever the case may be. And I see it mostly in individuals whose formal education is not as deep as maybe other people. They are freer to see patterns and outcomes that are not biased by what you've learned because you had to prove it because somebody else did it. It's an important tool for people who are innovators and originators. You must have imagination and that's what our african children need we tend to murder creativity in african children by the time they're seven or eight by forcing them into traditional education to literally concrete over those budding uh, roots of imagination so we need that it's why it's important for children to draw, to play mummies and daddies, to play doctors and nurses, to play teacher, to play at and practice at the adulthood they're growing into. But we must leave them with the creative spark and the intuition and the courage to say, I'm going to try something that's never been seen before and not have parents and teachers who, because they're trying to mitigate risk of failure, say, I'm going to prevent you from opening up the spigot of failure by only allowing you to do this so that you think you're successful. That's a dangerous mindset. Intuition is so needed, it's necessary. And I I consider myself to be mostly an intuitive learner. Again, I'm very happy that we're having this conversation because we keep coming back to some of the things I've been thinking about, you know. And one of those things is, how dogmatic our education system is and how it prevents us from being innovative and being challenges of the system. Because, you know, the expectation of education is to be in a certain queue and a certain line and go back to literature review to the past and never leaning forward into the future and allowing us to explore what is possible. So my personal story, for example, I was always a very good student. I was basically excellent top of my class. But when I went to high school, that changed dramatically, not because I was suddenly a bad student, but because my perspective of the world changed. In high school, I re-envisioned and reimagined myself, and that came with trying to challenge everything I had known. And by asking these questions and on learning what I knew previously and trying to ask that what has been done previously and how do we think about it in a new way, I suddenly became an outcast and not necessarily in, in, in a good way, but in the way that you want to challenge what is possible, like you want to challenge what is done and that is not allowed in this system. You just have to, you know, regurgitate, reproduce you know, told this monotistic pattern of thinking, don't look forward into the future and just copy what has been done in the past. And that doesn't allow for creativity and exploration of an experimentation of thought. You're just allowed to stay in your lane and not become something else. And no offense to education or no offense to professors and all of that. But, you know, their degrees and honorary certificates come from 
having to do literature review, having to study what was in the past, and never leaning forward into the future. You know, but anytime we're able to step outside the line of the patternistic line of thinking, we are able to see something new and novel happen. And most of the time you're going to fail, but that is not a problem, you know. Failure is actually good for that. But anytime we succeed, then we see a beautiful line of invention and innovation. That is something that we should encourage in our children. And we should encourage that kind of um, alienation, I should even say, from, from, from what is done every day and encourage difference and encourage uh, exploration and encourage questions that would seem, would seem, um, would seem too daring, would seem impossible to 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 be answered but just being confident enough to ask those questions is the first step they are going to take to creating innovations to creating the next level elon max the people that are going to change the world and and that is something that unfortunately the education system does not do you have said that so beautifully and it's true unfortunately our education system has the effect of blunting the imaginary world we want to live in. It blunts that that wonderful spark of creativity and questioning and wanting to rearrange the pieces on the board to see what, what new can come of that. And education is supposed to release the mind to do its greatest work, not pen it in based on here's what's been proven and this is all that you can do. We need we opening up that spigot is something that I think leadership is afraid of sometimes. Um, some types of business leaders who are more bosses than leaders will do that. But we need it more now than ever before is free thinking, radical innovation. Um, Obama's always talking about sandboxes of scenario development to find out what is possible. We have AI that can do that in such a way that there is a massive disruption to continuity of anything, especially in a COVID world in Africa right now. These are the things that we need. And then you touched on innovation. This is so important. Otherwise, we're going to have another crisis, I would say, in another 25 to 40 years time. If we have people and young people innovating to the limitations of what the regulator will allow or the limitations of what investors will invest in, then we will accidentally subvert innovation from being for the service of mankind or for the use of customers because so many people are building things and only talking about apps and building apps for apps sake without having a sense of um loyalty to the customer you're trying to serve you're instead trying to build an app so that you can raise capital from a vc who really only wants to be out in three years time and you would have made enough money to be slightly famous and chop that money for dinner tonight versus here's my long-term legacy based on the problem i'm resolving and you've accidentally done it for the money that you could raise we have these challenges on the table today and their roots are in unfettered imagination and um, creativity challenges. That's all this is. Same thing. Okay, so now let's segue the conversation back to what I wanted to talk about. What is trade tech and what are you doing so differently in that field? Certainly. Well, we all know what fintech is, financial technology. Trade tech, 
technologies for enhancing trade. And I remember Ovamba was using that language internally and was told that there's no such thing. And we were, we lacked the courage to say there's going to be, even if there isn't today. And now we see this word everywhere else. For, uh, for Ovamba, the technologies and innovations that we create in order to um, perfect the ecosystem for the buying and selling of goods by our customers in the formal and informal sector and the risk processes and proprietary models that we create and the way we package it so that banks can license our technology to do more alternative trade financing for the, the informal sector. So that's what trade tech is. It's the technology and innovations to do more of what many Africans do, buying and selling stuff. So when we were just talking about work, I just chanced on this thought, you know, it's unfortunate that when we go to the workplace, our attitude is much of the bare minimum. So we ask ourselves, what is the bare minimum for me to do to keep my job, right? We never ask ourselves aspirational questions. And, and unfortunately, this is something that I think that Africans, we suffer from. We want to keep the bare minimum. We want to keep the status quo. We are not explorative as much as we can be, right? And so it sees like we exhibit that in the workplace like people want to go to the workplace and do what they've been asked to do and never go above and beyond you know going above and beyond and seeing what is possible and so we are just concerned about maintaining the sanity of what is possible and not really aspirational in thinking about the possibilities at the end of the tunnel so my guess my question is how do we think next level and how do we make sure that we are able to launch into that future without fearing failure? We need to be able to ask the questions, how can I have everything? There is still um, a real sense of bulking and rearing up in concern when people, let's say like yourself or myself or others who want everything and people say, oh, don't be greedy. What's greedy about wanting everything? What good reason is there that you can persuade me that I should not have absolutely everything? Once we get people who are comfortable with wanting everything, we will see a level of work and engagement and success and achievement and effort like we have never seen before. There's nothing wrong with wanting everything, yet somehow we keep trying to tell young people and each other that, you know, don't be too greedy. Try to just have enough. You can, no, instead of looking for their minimum, we should be asking, how can I have everything? And what does everything look like? And that's the secret to changing African psychology around wealth and success. It's what you just said. Stop thinking about bare minimums and think about how to have absolutely every damn thing. Then the other thing that's important in that is, let's say in the workplace, when managers, bosses, business owners ask people, what is it that you need from me that I can give to you to make you stay here or succeed? How can I help you realize your best career goals um, via the leadership that I have available to you? Being in service to someone's excellence and helping people have everything. That's my worldview desire. Viola, this has been such 
an honor to have this conversation with you. It's been very beautiful, insightful, profound, all the amazing words I could possibly use to describe it. Viola is the CEO of Uvamba Technologies and truly one of the most innovative companies in the world, according to Fast Company. Thank you very much, Viola, for coming to the podcast. And yeah, it's just an amazing conversation and we are very happy to have had you. I can't wait to watch as you get further and further along the path of that. So good for you. And if I can ever ask, answer any questions, just, you know, reach out. I really enjoyed speaking to you today. It was such a pleasure and such an honor. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, consider supporting our fundraiser to help us build a mini home studio. This will help us produce a better audio quality and enrich your overall listening experience. Find the link to the fundraiser in our show notes. Special acknowledgement to those who have supported us already. And my team members, Gabriel Sakite, our producer and sound engineer, and Nathaniel Opoku, our marketing lead. Subscribe to this podcast to get notified about new episodes every week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast. Join us next week for more thoughtful conversations with Africa's most inspiring leaders. 